listening to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast. Hello and welcome to a podcast from the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales on the gender pension gap. I'm Rosamond Irwin. We hear a lot about the gender pay gap, the difference between the average earnings of men and women. But the gender pensions gap, a related problem, is not a subject that has had anywhere near as much attention. Yet it is actually more acute. While the gender pay gap among full-time employees in April 2020 was 7.4% and 15.5% among all employees, the gender pension gap is much wider. A recent report found a 40% gap in pension savings between women and men. That's an average difference in pension income by gender of about £7,500 a year. And according to research released by Scottish Widows earlier this year, the average woman in her 20s is on course to have £100,000 less in her pension pot at retirement than a man of the same age. Women face a higher risk of retiring in poverty than men. And the pandemic appears to have increased the gender pension gap because women were more likely to be furloughed or to have lost their jobs. So what is going on here? Women live longer, they earn less and they save less. They are more likely to take long breaks from their career for caring responsibilities or to work part-time. Lower salaries means that if they go to university, it then takes them longer to pay back their student debts, which can mean they also start saving for their pensions later. Part of this gap is down to the rules around workplace pensions, where automatic enrolment in the scheme only happens if you earn more than £10,000 a year with the organisation. Campaigners also note that most retirement products are designed for the 40-year career man and do not necessarily reflect women's divergent needs. And even the state pension is based on how many years you've worked or national insurance credits you've received during time off for parenting or caring, but only if you're entitled to them and have claimed them. Because men are more likely to be in continuous full-time employment, they receive more on average than women. The situation across Europe varies hugely. A report by the asset management firm Mercer found the gap ranged from 4% to 49%. It's also likely that you will have heard of the WASPI campaign, the group who protested against the sudden acceleration of the women's state pension age from 60 to 66. This was a decision that a cohort of women born in the 1950s were not really ready for. Last year, WASPI campaigners lost their long-running Court of Appeal challenge against these increases. This podcast will explore all these issues and explain how individuals, businesses and government can go about closing the gender pensions gap. I'd like to introduce my guests today. Jane Portis is a former financial services partner at two big four accountancy firms. She's the co-founder of Insuring Women's Futures, which is a market-led programme for improving women's and society's financial resilience and the author of the Risks in Life series of reports, which include Solving Women's Pension Deficit to Improve Retirement Outcomes for All. Philippe Seidel works for AGE, the largest European network of organisations of and for older people in Europe. He specialises in the fields of employment of older workers and social protection, as well as gender equality. Philippe also coordinates AGE's relations with the European Parliament. And Philippa Kelly is ICAEW's Director of Financial Services, who leads its work across banking, insurance and investment management. She qualified as a Chartered Accountant with PwC. Jane, I'd like to come to you first with a very open question, which is what do we mean when we talk about the gender pensions gap? When we refer to the gender pension gap, what we generally mean is the gap between men and women's private pension wealth. 
And that is essentially the total of workplace pensions and personal pension savings. So, for example, for self-employed people. Currently, the gender pension gap varies from between one and a half to two times in the mid-20s and 30s through to the 40s across all people with and without pensions, rising to three times in the 50s and as much as six to seven times by the late 60s and early 70s. However, these figures don't take account of people's life circumstances. In fact, the pension gap rises from two to nine times between the ages of 30 and the late 60s for first-time married couples. And like the pay gap, the gap is wider for ethnic minority women and women with disabilities due to lower earnings. Philippe, can I bring you in here? The picture is quite different across different European countries. It is indeed. The gender pension gap, it varies from uh, very low, actually, in Estonia towards very high in Luxembourg, where it's 44%, so between 2% and 44%. Now, I'm talking here uh, maybe a bit slightly differently than what you just said on also statistics, including state pension, where some of these differences can be compensated. So let's say, let's go in the lower end of the scale, that's Estonia and Denmark, where the pension gap is very low, obviously for very different reasons. Estonia, because pensions in general are very low, uh, so you have a very low gap when you don't receive a lot. In, in Denmark, it's the complete contrary. You have quite high pensions, but you also have high compensatory mechanisms for care gaps. And essentially, it's the care gap which is expressing itself via the pension gap. The pension gap sort of crystallizes all the discrimination and disadvantages faced by women in the labor market during their earning years towards the end of their lives. And there's also a demographic dimension to this, Philippe. Yes, indeed. It's particularly worrying because women have higher life expectancy. So that in itself, it's a good news that women have high life expectancies across Europe, actually. However, it also brings the challenge that you need to finance uh, your life during these extra years. And the fact which is not very often talked about is that women and men have about the same healthy life expectancy, which essentially means that older women spend more of their lives in bad health, which means that they are in need for long-term care. In many cases, they have to finance the long-term care by themselves. They also need to pay for, obviously, medication and extra costs for, for medical treatment if they need to, depending on the healthcare system, of course. So they actually have higher expenses towards the end, especially towards the end of their lives, where their partner might have passed away with his income, uh, and they have to uh, rely on a smaller pot uh, financing very often the same kind of household in terms of energy costs, etc. So women are stuck a little bit at the end of their lives between the expenses which increase and their incomes which are already lower and even become lower towards the end of the life. Philippa, I'd like to bring you in here. One of the problems obviously is that difficult middle part of women's careers where if they choose to have children or they end up caring for an elderly relative. No, that's right. And it's, it's not new news that women's careers can tend to take a less straightforward trajectory after starting a family and, as you say, maybe caring for older relatives at the same time as well. And for women who do return to work, the fact that support with childcare costs doesn't start for many until the child's three means that women are more likely to reduce their hours or leave employment altogether. 
and that impacts their pension saving. So there's some really tough choices in the, in those early years of childhood and cost and availability of good quality childcare is a real issue. So in early September, The Guardian reported on a survey of working parents and that found that 97% thought that childcare was too expensive. And for 33% of people, it cost more than rental mortgage. And this was actually true for me for the first two years that my daughter was in childcare. So I I relate to that very much. And 96% don't think that the government does enough to support the cost and availability of childcare. And in the UK, we do have one of the most expensive childcare systems in the world. And interestingly, actually, there's going to be a debate in Parliament about whether there should be an independent review of childcare funding and affordability. And that's after a petition that accrued more than 110,000 signatures. So it will be interesting to see if this is an issue that the government starts to take more seriously, because we, we really see those costs coming to add to that crunch of of how much women are able to work and save and otherwise. Jane, the pensions gap feels like the sort of poor sister of the gender pay gap in terms of the amount of coverage it gets. Why does it not get more attention and how do we put it on the agenda? The pension system in the UK is linked to earnings and today women's lifetime earnings are just 59% of men. And so If I think about what are the staging posts on women's pension life journey, there are about five key elements to that. And the first is that the gender pension gap starts at home and at school. So young women are qualifying in skills that tend to be highly gendered with lower pay prospects. So, for example, half as many girls are encouraged into STEM as boys. And these skills gaps impact earnings throughout women's lives. Secondly, career and pay gaps in the design of workplace pensions can widen the gender pension gap. So, for example, 60% of low-paid workers are women. On top of this, highly qualified women face barriers to career and pay progression. So 65% of senior higher paid leaders are male. And While automatic enrolment has been a positive step to get more men and women into pension saving, workplace pensions, including salary sacrifice schemes, are based on employee and employer contributions, which together with tax relief really compound this pay differential. Philip has also talked about childcare and having a family is one of those critical moments on women's pensions life journey. With women still taking the majority of maternity parental leave, there's just 2% take up of shared parental leave in the UK. And women are doing twice as much caring as housework. And as Philippa mentioned, are far more likely to reduce their hours. And working part time can reduce a woman's pension pot by as much as 50% compared to a man at retirement. But also I mentioned relationships and today we're marrying later, we're more likely to have a child while we're cohabiting, which by the way, half of people are unaware of the different legal and pension rights when a cohabiting relationship breaks up. And how we're engaging with pensions and planning our retirement, Philippe mentioned the impact of later life differences between men and women and generally people find pensions incredibly complex but for women whose lives are far less linear 
those decisions around saving and also retirement are much more complicated. But I think, you know, what we really need to think about when we're sort of reflecting on why it's really important is, you know, and why and why people are less engaged in the pension gap compared to the pay gap. I mean, let's remember that equal pay came in in 1970 and the pay gap reporting in 2017 and we're still getting to grips with its root causes and what it means. And if when it comes to the pension gap, if the pay gap doesn't close until 2110, as has been reported, then the gender pension gap won't close until at least 2160 for an 18-year-old woman starting work at that time in 2110. Um, Philippe, can I bring you in here? You've said that the problem is if we focus on closing gender pay as a way to fix the gender pensions gap, it's sort of a bit too late for people with that problem now. Yeah, indeed. You mentioned already the impact of gender segregation in the labor market. So that is even stronger than the pay gap in terms of having different pay for women and when doing the same job. The one thing which is also plays into that is the uh, long-term care gap, the informal care gap for older persons who are in need for care. So a lot of women of the generation where we would expect that they worked more than previous generations in terms of how much time they, they spent on the labor market. Actually, they had both career breaks for childcare and career breaks for the care of their own parents as a consequence of longevity, because we have more older persons around. Uh, we have more older persons who are in need for long-term care. And so for the moment, the state is not stepping up these care services, at least not sufficiently. And therefore, there's huge numbers of mainly older women who are still of working age and who are taking care of their parents, which actually prejudices them just before the official exit age of the labor market, which is often overvalued in many pension systems to encourage people to work for longer. So this absence of long-term care policies actually means that women are filling this gap and have an even stronger impact on their pension. So pensions are very long-term policies and uh, slight changes at one age have huge impacts at another age. As you said, the changes we do now affect women who retire in 2050, but not the women who are now faced with inadequate pensions or, um, or who are living in poverty and social exclusion. And actually, we would expect that the pay gap or the poverty gap closes in terms of pay we can say on European level that the gap is slowly closing in terms of gender pension pay gap. It's closely is slowly closing. However, it is not for poverty, for poverty and social exclusion. The gap is still widening, especially at the end of the life, as I was mentioning for 75 plusers and especially for women. So this is really something of concern, which shows that the policies that we are talking about, they are all very important in a long term perspective. But they come too late for those who are already retired or who are just shortly before retiring. You're listening to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast. Philippa, we've focused so far on private pensions, workplace and personal pensions. What about the state pension? It's those three elements of, I suppose, how we are provided for in later life, and they all they all need to work together. And the state pension, there are some tough choices that the government is going to have to make around particularly the triple lock at the minute, and how that can contribute to pensioner incomes. But at the same time, 
in the the situation that we're in in terms of public spending it's also the second largest individual item in the public sector budget after the NHS so a lot to be considered there which did a piece of research in 2019 which concluded that the contribution rates under auto enrollment were probably going to be insufficient for a lot of earners so whilst we have auto enrollment now and there's been much success that's come from that in terms of getting people into long-term savings is it actually going to be enough by the time that those who came into auto enrollment start to retire which concluded in their research that it wasn't necessarily going to be sufficient and something that they proposed and so going back to some of those gender differences was actually that the government should make lump sum new parent contributions for women on the birth of their first child to try and close some of that gap where women forego pension contributions as they work less during those early years. So how we accrue state pension is definitely improving, but there's more to do there as well. Philippe, we've seen a very high profile campaign about the state pension, the WASPI campaign, the Women Against State Pension Inequality. Would you talk about what that campaign was about and how this became such a big problem and why it wasn't sort of anticipated by politicians that it was going to sort of blow up in the way it did? Maybe I'll start first with what the intentions might have been of this. And there's also something that which we favor. It's the equalization of pension ages between women and men, which is something that we strongly support because having lower pension ages for women essentially means giving them less time to accrue a sufficient pension. So with all the gaps that already exist in the labor market, we are also cutting short of the period where they have a chance to actually close that gap, at least partially. So therefore, it is a problem for us. However, people need to understand their pension. They need to understand their life planning and which kind of choices they are able to make, which kind of choices they are are not able to make. And in most European countries, which are either increasing pension ages for all or equalizing pension ages between women and men, they are doing it very progressively. And usually uh, there's a lot of communication involved because it's fruit of a long societal debate about thoughts about which costs we are willing to bear for the aging of our population and which amount of pension do we want to give them so that everyone is able to live in dignity. So I take the example of Germany where the general um, pension age is increasing. It's increasing by a couple of months every year. So depending on when you're born, you have to uh, delay your retirement by uh, three months or so. That is much more acceptable than what is happening in the UK. So in the UK, pension age was increased suddenly for men and women to be equalized uh, between women and men. And therefore, women didn't really know that suddenly they had to work for a couple of years longer from one day to the next. And there was very little discussion and conversation around this campaign. So if you want to create opposition to a reform, you do it like that. You don't inform those who will be most affected by that. And you decide about important changes of their lives, not just slight changes with which you could uh, be accommodating, but important changes. I also want to underline, we were talking about all these gaps, care gaps in mainly women's uh, biographies. They have a scarring effect on their performance on the labor market. So this also is a reason why many women are in jobs which are 
flexible enough to accommodate childcare, which uh, don't necessarily need decade-long specializations and other of these factors that you cannot really build up when you have to go in and out of the labor market. So the labor market situation of older women is actually very bad. There's a huge gap between employment rates of women and men before retirement age. And if you don't address this by learning policies, by legislation about what employers have to accept in terms of flexibility of their employees, then you will not close this gap. And as I already mentioned, these last years before retirement have a huge impact on your retirement in most of Europe's pension systems. Jane, can I ask you about those issues that older female workers face in the labour force? Yeah, so women's lifetime earnings are 59% of men's throughout the life course. And you talked previously about the link to the gender pay gap. Well, the gender pay gap actually increases in the 50s and 60s for all the reasons that we've discussed. But I think it's also important to reflect on how women are equipped to be able to effectively work and earn and progress in their careers and save for a pension at this really critical time of their lives. In particular, as we're all living longer, as Philippe mentioned, women are facing not only caring for children in their sort of later working years because we're having children later but also caring for the elderly so 60% of informal carers are women one in three women in their late 50s are caring for an elderly relative at the same time we shouldn't underestimate the impact on the menopause of older working women's working lives so about half of women say the menopause impacts their ability to work and their performance at work. So I know we're going to come on to solutions, but themes such as flexible working to accommodate older workers is really key. But I also want to go back to skills because that's where my conversation started really on the pensions life journey for women. It really starts around having the right skills to be able to be most successful and realise potential in the workplace. And actually, Women, in particular older women, lack some of the skills for the workplace of the future, in particular digital skills. So there's some really key challenges for older working women, which is why it was really important when we go back to what happened with WASPI. You know, some of what we're talking about here are policies to address the situation that we face with the gender pension gap and correct that for older working women so that they can have a reasonable retirement and then other matters that we need to address really need to go back to the root cause and and really leveling up so that the next generation of older working women aren't confronted with the same gender pension gap but actually I call it a women's pension deficit. Philippe one issue that we've started talking about a lot more as a society is financial abuse Does this have an element when it comes to talking about pensions too? I would rather talk about abuse generally, because with the difference in pay, women are in a dependent situation within their own household, financially dependent. Of course, if it's a harmonious relationship, you deal with it and you you share both incomes within your family. But this is not the case for everybody. And you also mentioned the high divorce rates and uh, rates of single parents who have to take more time, uh, dedicate more time to their children because they cannot share the time. 
and who maybe do no longer qualify for uh, the accrual of survivors' pensions rights, uh, for example, or for a share of their former spouse's pension. So those are problematic situations where essentially the work that women provide in the household is not remunerated by other mechanisms such as sharing the pension. I mean, of course, there's the policy of granting aliments to the parent who takes care of children, but aliments usually do not count towards a pension. It's more about what you're spending right now in your life. So this restricts the possibilities women have also to leave abusive relationships also towards the end of their lives, and maybe especially so, because abuse is not something which only happens in younger age. It can happen all across your lifetime, including when you're both uh, on a pension. So there's really something to be looked at by policymakers in terms of which kinds of legal arrangements have to be part of breakups, be it a divorce or breakups without marriage, when there's a care gap involved. Jane, the um, element of financial abuse is one you've written about. What do you think can be done to alleviate this problem? So first of all, I'd just say that when I did my first piece of work on the risks in life facing women through their financial life journeys, domestic abuse and within that economic abuse is one of the top 12 financial risks facing women. And I really think that the, the pandemic has really highlighted that to us all. I do also want to just reference that you know economic abuse is a form of coercive control which can have devastating and lifelong effects on survivors. One in six women in the UK, so that's 4.2 million women, experience economic abuse from an intimate partner or family member in their lifetime. 1.3 million women are prevented from having a savings account by their partner and 1.5 million women say their partner prevents them from working, so that means earning, or they work for their partner without pay. And those are really big, big numbers. What we see then is that women experience their pension contributions being cancelled, even if they are allowed to earn, and also their retirement drawdowns coerced. And in the report that I've just worked on and authored with Surviving Economic Abuse, which is the only UK charity that's totally focused on economic abuse. There are a number of steps, both within employers, to support survivors and to raise awareness and to put mechanisms in place to help address economic abuse, but also within financial services as part of firms' work on vulnerable customers. I'd like to come to more general solutions now, and I'll come to each of you in turn. What can we do, and that means as individuals, as businesses, including the government too, what can we do to address the pensions gap? Um, Jane, I'll come straight back to you. So first of all, as people, as I said, the pensions gap starts at school and at home. So any of us who are parents can be thinking about how we're we're encouraging our daughters. We can also reflect on our own personal gender pension gap and how we can balance that out and how we can perhaps share responsibilities at home and at work to enable both parties in a relationship to have a fair pension and one that actually reflects our relationships. Secondly, really talking to women. I write a lot about the six moments that matter in our financial life journeys and if women engaging 
with financial life and decisions uh, being taken at these key points in their lives, such as when having a child, deciding to work part-time, sharing care with their partners. These are really key moments in a woman's life to really reflect on the impact on pensions. And from an employer perspective, um, well, I think firstly, really, I'd encourage employers to really understand uh, their pensions data, to understand their pension participation and where the participation and contribution gaps are, and to think about what that means in terms of how they're engaging with different groups of employees and also for their salary sacrifice schemes to reflect on whether or not the tiers of contributions that they have as part of the design might actually be compounding the gender pension gap. For example, if employers have higher tiers of contribution rates for employer contributions for higher earners, that can exacerbate the gap. Pension well-being in the workplace, absolutely vital, but link this to people's lifestyles to make it relevant for people according to their life circumstances. Prompting staff who are thinking about changing their work arrangements to reflect on their pensions. This isn't just now about women and mothers. You know, we're all going to be living less linear lives and changing our careers as we work longer. Half of us do not think about our pensions when we make changes to our working arrangements. And obviously supporting workplace policies around shared parental leave, encouraging both parties to participate in childcare and to share that and flexible working that allows for career progression to enable people to to realise their potential earnings and their savings. Philippa, you've talked a lot about the need for affordable childcare. Do you think that is a big part of the solution here? I think it can be, yes. And I think from a policy perspective, if we can look at other countries and where they're perhaps more equitable in terms of how childcare provision works, universal access and how it's funded, what lessons can we learn there. I also think separately that there's a role for the financial services industry in helping women get more comfortable with investing. So research tells us that 79% of women save, but only 18% of women invest. And what I would like to see from the industry is helping create a space in investing that women feel like they can more claim as their own as well. So where women do have that opportunity and that um, disposable income, getting more investing, not just saving. And Philippe, what is the importance of minimum pensions and survivors' pensions here? It is hugely important. Because most of the solutions that uh, have been discussed in terms of trying to encourage more women to save more and to invest more, it implies that women have the capacity to save. And actually, most of women don't or don't have sufficiently the capacity to save more. So minimum pensions are vital for that. Also, as you said, in the context of you know multiple career changes, technological shifts which make that uh, spells of unemployment are becoming more usual in people's careers you need to have a safeguard for that and essentially you don't expect people from a certain age on to work so the state or the collectivity has a responsibility to provide them with an income that does protect them effectively from poverty 
and social exclusion and which allows them to live a life in dignity so going beyond to just uh, be able to survive but actually to participate and thrive in society which also is important from a budgetary point of view because people who are living more fulfilled lives are people who are also healthier and who take better care of their health so you are contributing also to the sustainability of healthcare systems uh, when you do that so minimum pensions are Im extremely important in this regard and they're of course especially important for uh, for older women um, I talked about already about the um, the problems around uh, divorce those are important problems that need to be tackled and survivors pensions as I said because women are more likely to end their lives without their spouse and have to provide more financial support for their lives so survivors pensions are extremely important here I also want to support actually what the others were saying about childcare. it needs to be normal for both women and men of any profession and any uh, career to take time off for childcare, and this means there need to be mandatory policies for for the amount of flexibility that employers have to accept so that these care breaks do not have this scarring effect that i was mentioning and this segregating effect and finally as i said there's a lot of talk about child care but long-term care is just as much of a problem for women to reach equal pensions so there needs also to be uh, more reflection on how we take the burden of long-term care and the burden of uh, the demographic shifts that we are experiencing off the shoulders of women and to put it on the shoulders of society uh, collectively thank you very much thank you to my guests jane philippe and philippa and thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.